0: If you have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to take it out and turn with me to the book of Romans. Now we're continuing today in the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 7 uh, this morning, so go ahead and turn there. You know, every once in a while, I'm, I'm excited to hear about um, just what is the, like the state of faith in America I've always get curious about that because we know that over time, culture changes and people change. And uh, so this past week, I was doing some research into trying to, to get a pulse on how Americans view heaven, hell, and sin. And as I was doing some research, I went back to a study that was done in 2014. It was a study done by Lifeway, and this is exactly what they did. They They didn't want to get just a a Christian perspective on these things, even though they did parse out some of their information. But generally speaking, they wanted to, to ascertain what is it that the a, an, an average American, how do they view heaven, hell, sin, and salvation? And so here's some of their findings that, um, that we find that are very mixed. They found that 67% of Americans believe in heaven. So the majority of Americans actually believe in heaven But of that, 45% believe that there are many ways to heaven. 61% of Americans believe that hell is a real place. So you've got the majority of Americans believing that there is a heaven and there is a hell. But as a whole, this is shocking, that Americans are not too concerned or worried about their sin or being sent to hell. 67% 67% of Americans believe that most people are basically good even though they sin a little bit. Only 18% of Americans believe that small small sins lead to damnation in hell. Most Americans 71% believe that they contribute some effort towards their own salvation. Two-thirds, 64%, say that in order to find peace with God, you have to take the first step, and then God responds with his grace. Are you tracking with me? People are confused. So the average American believes, they believe in a heaven, they believe in a hell, they understand sin, but they don't believe that they're sinful. Or not sinful enough to deserve hell, that hell is only reserved for the really, really bad people. They generally believe that they're good. And they generally believe if they do good, that they will go to heaven. This is what people believe. And maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, what's wrong with all of that? What a... Tell you and help you understand today as we're walking through this passage that heaven and hell are real places. Those are the eternal destinations of all created people. Your life and my life is quickly moving to an eternity where either we are headed towards heaven and or we are headed towards hell. Those are the only two destinations. Those are the only two realities. All life is pointing to one of those. And we better, while we're here, while we have breath in our lungs, work it out to figure out where we're going. Because God forbid we get it wrong. God forbid that we believe something other than what is true. So really, I think that there are three approaches that people normally take to justify heaven and hell. Like, where am I going and how, how do I get there? And some of these I've, I've shared with you before, so this may be review for some of you. Generally speaking, people, they, they, they parse it out a little bit different, but generally speaking, there are those that believe that there's somehow there's this cosmic scale out there. Right, that that I'm good with God if somehow through my life I end up doing more good than I do bad. If I do that, then, then I'm good with God. There are so many people that believe this, but I want to challenge that belief. I want to challenge that understanding because how many of you are actually keeping score? Do you have a book somewhere? In your home, where you're saying, I did four good things today and five bad things, so that tomorrow, then I got to do 10 good things to absolve the sin of of, of today? Right? There's no way of knowing. There's no way of knowing or having assurance of salvation if you're following the cosmic scale. So we must reject that. The, The second way of dealing with all of this is some people believe that they need to follow a religion that somehow they have to follow some set of moral principles that are either given from some body or something or somewhere that is written down in a code that if I do these things, then I will be right with God. Religion is not the answer. And I'll tell you why, why that's not a good thing. Because sometimes, as a human, you don't want to do the things that religion tells you to do. Right? There are some people believe, this is honestly what they believe, they believe if I, if I go to church, if I give money, and if I help people, then I'm good to go. There are really people that believe this. That if I go to church and give money and help people, then I'm good to go. The problem with that is, what happens when you stay up a little bit late on Saturday night, and you wake up on Sunday morning and you're tired, and you don't come to church? Right? You can't even hold up to the very standards which you, which you say will make you right with God. So we have to reject the religion. We have to reject it. And the third approach, which I believe is the only approach, which the Bible continually speaks of over and over again, is that those that are welcomed into heaven are those that place faith in the person and the work of Jesus. That's it. So Jesus is the the third option, and Jesus is the only option that actually gets us to heaven. Now we don't just want to follow Jesus just so that we get the benefits of heaven, which some people also do, but it's much more. Faith in Jesus begins in a moment, but it is also lived out the rest of our lives. As we've been walking through this book of Romans, this is what Paul is doing. He's walking and giving us a deep dive into the gospel. He's helping us understand what is this good news of Jesus. And by doing so, he's helping to clear up the confusion that was present in the culture of the time in which he's writing. Because there are many, many people that believed that you get to heaven through following a bunch of religious rules. And so he's debunking that. And so he's clearing up the confusion for helping us understand that Jesus is the one that took our penalty for our sin. And Jesus is the one that died in our place so that we may be forgiven and so that we may have peace with God. And Paul has been writing about that once you place faith in Jesus, what happens is you become new. And there are all kinds of benefits that happen. In that instant when we place our faith in Jesus, we become a child of God. In that moment, we are saved. In that moment, we are justified. In that moment, we are made right. But then in that moment, we begin this process of sanctification. Where as we continue on, we become less and less like our old selves and more and more like Jesus. And what we've been walking through is helping us understand this new identity. Because once we really understand our identity in Christ, we understand how it changes the way that we live. We always live out of the identity in which we understand of who we are. So what, the passage that we're going to look at today, Paul is describing and he's challenging a person that seeks to gain salvation through adhering to the law. Or someone that finds salvation through following some code, some creed, or religion. So he's going to debunk that. He says, instead of going that way, place your faith in Jesus and trust in the power of the Spirit. And last week as we were looking in chapter 7, what we learned is that we are free from the law. That what Jesus has done is he came to free us from the demands of the law so that we could be united with Jesus. That we're no longer married to the law, but that we are free to marry Jesus. And so today, as we look at this passage, Paul's going to continue this idea of helping us understand how is it that we, as believers, are to relate to the law that we see that God gave in the Old Testament. And rising from uh, this this argument that Paul is giving, comes two natural questions which we're going to tackle today. The first question is... Well, if we're no longer free from the law, then is the law sinful? That's the first question we're going to take a look at. And the second we're going to take a look at is if the law is sinful, then is the law death? So let's begin uh, taking a look at the first question. Is the law sinful? We're going to begin in chapter 7, verse 7. Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment holy and righteous and good. Let me unpack this for us. When, what Paul is, is beginning to do here is in this explanation of, is the law sinful? He uses the understanding or the term I. And what Paul is doing is he's referring to himself and he's referring to any other person that would attempt to gain salvation by means of the law apart from faith in Jesus. So what Paul is saying is that he's giving kind of a testimony. If you know Paul's testimony at all, Paul grew up a Jew of Jews. He was a man that tried every single day to live by the law. If the law said it, he tried to do it. And yet there came a time in his life when he was on the road uh, to seek to persecute Christians, those that had already come to have faith in Jesus. And the voice of God, God shows up to him, or Jesus shows up to him and says, Paul, Paul, or Saul saw at the time, why do you persecute me? And it's in that moment that Paul's eyes were opened to see that Jesus was the way, that Jesus was the one that God had given so that men could be free from their sin. So Paul's life was changed. But Paul's saying here, he's saying, I, in the instance of referring to himself, but also anyone else that would come after him, or anyone else that was before him, anyone that was an Israelite or a Jew. Or even Adam himself. Anyone that seeks to find salvation apart from faith in Jesus is lacking. So Paul now is continuing the conversation that we started last week. Where we learned that we are free from the law. And in this process he makes the statement that would have had the Jewish believers. Hearing something in a very difficult challenging way. Last week, we learned in verse 5 of chapter 7. Paul writes this about the law For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passion, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This statement for those seeking to make their lives right before God by following the law, this statement would have been provocative. This statement would have been deeply challenging to those Jewish listeners. Because the question is, how is it that the law that came from God, how is it that this law arouses sinful passions inside of me? Right? The law was given by God to, to help God's people enter into a covenant relationship with him. So how can this good thing that now is living in our lives produce fruit or bear fruit for death? You see, the law was their hope of salvation. So naturally then the question is, well, wait a minute. So if if the law is arousing these sinful passions, then is the law sin? Right? Is the law bad? Did God give us something that was bad? This is what Paul begins to answer in verse 7. He says, What shall we, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Paul gives us an emphatic no to the answer. He says, the law is not bad. The law is not sin. I heard a pastor once say this, that God uses a holy thing, the law, to reveal an evil thing, sin, so that the necessary thing, death, might result in the most important thing, life. And then he goes on to explain just that truth. He gives us uh, four ways that the law is valuable in our lives. That the law was not bad, that the law is good, and it has value in our life. And so in verse 7, he shows us that the first thing, that the law is good, is because sin is made visible by the purity of the law. That's what he's saying in verse 7. Sin is made visible by the purity of the law. It's just like if I had a red speck of paint, right? Or a red speck of of dust or a red speck of fabric or whatever. And if it's just floating here, you can't really see it. But if I were to take that red speck and put it against the backdrop of a white piece of paper, that would make that red speck become more visible. Are you following me? This is what he's saying about the law. The law comes so that we see the sins that we're doing and it gives some identity to it. So Paul illustrates the value of the law here by talking through the sin of coveting. The law states, do not covet. Even before the law, Paul was guilty of coveting. He had, co- he had seen something his neighbor had and desired it. Or he had seen something that was lacking in his own life and he desired it. Maybe it was the righteousness or holiness of someone else and he desired it. So Paul, before he knew it was coveting, actually was participating in coveting. And so when the law comes, Paul could no longer say that I didn't know that I was coveting. The law names the sin and makes the one sinning accountable for that sin. See, the beauty of the law is the law reminds us and reveals to us that we are sinners. Now, that's not popular. Right? No, one, no one wants to be known as a sinner. No one wants to, to, for the world to think that they don't have it together and yet Paul is saying here, the law is good. The law is good because it reminds you that you are not good. It reminds you that you are sin- sinners because you, you've taken the commands of, law, of God, the, the boundaries that God has given us for life and peace, and we've stepped outside those boundaries over and over and over again. And the benefit of the law is that no one comes to faith in Christ until they first realize that they're a sinner. So the law actually aids us in salvation. The second value of the law is that the law reveals humanity's bentness towards sin. Look at me in verses 8 and 9. He says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once lived apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I you see, we all suffer just as Paul is giving us insight into his own life. We all suffer from a morally bankrupt human condition. The law not only reveals sin, but it adds fuel to the fighter. Right? As I talked about last week, all to, to, to highlight this truth, all we need to do is be reminded of, remember those signs that say, do not touch? Right? Or the speed limit sign on the highway. Right? Right. Those are, are governors for our lives. Those are, are boundaries for our safety. And how much inside of us do we want to when we see the sign do not touch or we see that speed limit where we're like, oh, those are just suggestions. Right? And it, it kind of arouses in us a rebel heart where we say, sign, you're not the boss of me. I don't live according to your rules. I don't live according to your guidelines because my life is more important, especially that speed limit sign. Guess what? I'm late, so you no longer have any authority over my life until you get pulled over. So we know in our own hearts from our own experience that the law reveals our bentness towards sin. Through the law, we learn just how sinful we really are. And it's through the law that makes us crave salvation. The third benefit of the law is the law was the boundary for life. And living outside the boundary brings death. So the law was the boundary for life. This is what he says in verse 10. He says, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. In some ways, Paul is like pointing back to the Garden of Eden where the command or the law was given to Adam. Right? Remember back in that time where where Adam had all kinds of freedom. Adam could go here, he could go there, he could wake, he could sleep, he could do all of those things. He could spend unlimited amount of time with his wife. And yet God says... Just stay away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can do all of this. You can experience all the joy of this, all the peace of this, but stay away from that. So one area was off limits. And yet Adam did not believe that God's promise says, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. So it's that prohibition there. You can't do this. Stay away from this. For if you do, this is bad. This will bring death to your life. And what did Adam do? He sinned and brought death to his life. The law actually gives us lots of freedom. It gives us lots of freedom. Just as we protect our kids with rules, right? Because we know better than them. When the the stove is on and there's boiling water on the stove, we tell our kids, don't touch it. Why? Because it's going to hurt them. And so the law, us giving the law, even in our own home, is for our own good. And yet, we, because we're rebellious, we don't want people to be the boss of us. We see that we willfully step outside those boundaries, and it leads to death. The fourth benefit of the law we see in these verses is the law reveals the nature of the lawgiver. Look at me in verse 12. He says, so the law is not sin, but so the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is holy, righteous, and good. And if it is these things and it comes from God, then that means the giver of the law must also be holy, righteous, and good. For it shows us God's very nature, that God is holy, God is righteous, and God is good. So is the law sinful? Absolutely not. But the law actually shows us how sinful, how truly sinful we really are And before we can be saved, we have to admit that we have a problem. We have to admit that we are not okay. I want you to hear this today. If you're not in Christ yet, you are not okay. You are not a good person. Though you may do some good things, in your heart you are a rebel against God and you are facing a condemnation that will you will have to endure for all eternity. I say that not out of anger, but I say that out of warning. Like hell is a real place and people really go there. And everyone that lives their life apart from Christ is going to end up there. That is the truth but yet God has given us Jesus to atone for our sin. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes. So first you must realize that you're not okay. The law has come so that we realize just how far we missed the mark. And the second question, so is the law sin? No. Well, then is the law death? Paul answers that question. In verse 13, he says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the question is, is the law death? Did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? Again, Paul gives the emphatic answer, no, it wasn't the law that brought death. It was your sin that brought death. Your sin was the problem, not the law. And the law was, did something great in us because it gave us the knowledge of our wrongdoing. It gave us the knowledge of our sin. So it's one thing to be involved in wrongdoing. It's another thing to know that you are doing wrong and to know that it is wrong. When we come to know that we have sin, we come to understand the depth of our sinfulness. And this is what Paul is getting to. See, there are two common issues. There are a lot of issues in our culture today, but there's a way in which we have tried to take all kinds of sin and normalize them. And two that I just want to touch on this morning is the sin of pornography and the sin of casual sex. These have been so normalized that people get caught up in them. They feel some sort of guilt, but then they can easily justify it in their minds because they're like, everybody's doing it. Right Right? That, that old-fashioned teaching of, of marriage reserved for man, husband and wife, and that's where the intimacy is supposed to be experienced. That's old-fashioned. Like everyone's doing it. Like it's just like, if, if a guy takes me out on a date and he pays for everything, then it's kind of an expectation that I pay him back by allowing him to use my body. Like that's common. And pornography is off the chain. People have access to it 24-7 in the palm of their hand, wherever they go, and people want to normalize it and say that it's okay. It's not okay. Those things are not okay. But yet we want to justify them in our minds. But then when we come face-to-face with the commands of Scripture, like Hebrews chapter 13, 4, which says, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Like when we come to see God's standard for that and we come to see our experience with that, as as a Christian, you find yourself in an uncomfortable place, right? And Paul's going to get to this because he's going to say, because I know now that this is God's standard and I know right now this is my practice and I know the two of them do not meet up. So what do I do? Well, the believer, the one way you want to know that you're a believer is that in your heart you desire God's standards. In your heart, you say, God, I know the good that I want to do, but I'm right here, right now. So help me. Matthew chapter five, verse 27 and 28. This is the command. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, when we come face to face with the truths of God, it's impossible for us to justify our sin. And when we get caught up in sin, we understand the power that sin has over us. Sin has a world, worldwide power over us, but yet we learned before that we are dead to sin. And yet there's this war that rages inside of us. And Paul understands this power struggles that, that believers walk through where believers want to live the righteous life that God has for them. And they want to follow the law, but it's as though they can't. And in chapter seven, verse 14 and following, it's almost as though Paul's gonna give us an encounter, even into his own life, how he feels and how he experienced this tension between God's standard and his own sinful nature. And it's almost as though Paul seems to be a little bit schizophrenic. So let me read this to you as I read it and as I, how I express Paul's struggle. Look at me in verse 14. He says, says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do What I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. No, if I do... What I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Do you see his struggle? Do you identify with the struggle? man? mean, if you're a believer, you're like, Paul, preach it because that's how I feel every single freaking day. Every day I feel like that because I know your standards. I know what you desire. I know that with following you is peace and life and hope and joy, but yet I'm down here. I know the good I want to do, but it's this other stuff I keep on doing, and I hate myself for it. Paul says, I want to do this, but on the other hand, I can't even do the good that I want to do. You know, it's like in our own lives, it's like the married man who knows it's wrong to flirt Even subtly, he knows that it's wrong, but yet he continues to do it. It's like the person that knows that taking opioids will ruin their life, but yet they still do it. It's like the person that has some empty hole in their life and they they fill it by, by trying to fill it with material things and they know that it only leaves them empty, but they still do it. So you agree that it's good not to flirt And that it's good to stay away from drugs. And it's good to reject shopping as a a, a way to escape. So what is all this? This is the universal principle that the law cannot overcome flesh. There's no way that the law can overcome our flesh. The law only shows us how messed up we are. Think about the person that is found guilty of embezzlement. Or the person that's guilty of murder or racism or rape or fraud. All these things ruin society, but the perpetrators of all these things knew that they were wrong and could not stop themselves. And this is true even for those that seem like they have a very strong moral will. There are some people that that just by God's design have a strong moral will. They know what's good and what's bad and what's right and what's wrong, and some people have a really strong willpower, but everyone, even with the strongest willpower, has a breaking point. And the problem with willpower is that a lot of times it puffs people up with pride. I don't need God. I can stop myself from doing that at any time. But the problem is. Well, this is a conclusion. Let's just go to Paul's conclusion, verse 21. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see that my, in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. So Paul is saying that there is a massive war that is being raged inside of each believer the person that knows the good that they ought to do and desires to do that, but in their inner being, there's another law at work and it wages war against their mind, making them captive to sin. So in verse 25, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. It's almost as though there's an all out civil war inside of Paul and inside of the believer. And this is Paul's conclusion. What a wretched man that I am. Can we say that about ourselves? Do you look yourself in the mirror and you say, what a wretched man or woman that I am? Because that's the position, that's the place where life, hope, and faith can begin. Oh, what a wretched person that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? This body that's marching towards death because I can't even do the good that I want to do. Who will save me from this predicament? Well, then he gives us the answer. Verse 25 Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's it. No principle can deliver you. Only a person can deliver you. And it's when we come and we bow our knee before Jesus that we can overcome sin. So where the law fails, Christ prevails every single time. So as we wrestle with this, I want us to understand, and we're going to see that even in yourself, you have no power or ability to follow out the law. You have no strength inside of you to do it. But that's how God has given us the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit to will us and move us towards obedience. And we're going to talk about that and the power of the, of the Spirit in our lives in the coming weeks. But I want to give us these three statements for you to contemplate the text, the depth of this text. Okay, One. The law is good, but it can't produce good societies. The law is good, but it can't produce good societies. God's law, as we know, is perfect, it's pure, it's good, it's holy. And any, any human law that comes from the goodness of God's perfect law is also good. But we should thank God that the law, not anarchy, carries the day of the country. But all the law can do is restrain evil. It only can hold it back. The law cannot purge evil because evil is always present. And so the law itself cannot produce good societies. It can only restrain it for a while. Second, if you're a Christian, then praise God that Christ has set you free from sin but know that you will still struggle with sin. He set you free, but you will still struggle. Don't trust in the law to free you out of that system. Don't say, okay, I'm gonna do better, I'm going to be better. No, let the law in your life allow you to see just how desperately you need Jesus. And when you see yourself failing, don't say, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to fix this problem. No, get on your knees and say, Lord, this is how sinful I am. Please save me. Please help me from the wretched man that I am. And as we continue to go to him, guess what he's going to do? He's going to heal us. He's going to change us. He's going to transform us. And the addictions will be gone. And the appetites of the things of this world will be gone. But it only comes when we keep coming back to the foot of Jesus. The third thing I want you to contemplate is finally today, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't yet come to place faith in Jesus, then my encouragement to you is to contemplate like what's standing in the way of me receiving this deliverance? What is standing in the way of me no longer being a wretched man that has no hope, but rather be a wretched man that has hope What's standing in the way of you just going all in and say, Jesus, I surrender it all today. You see where the law fails, Christ prevails. And all too often, Christians are living defeated lives because they're trying to fix themselves by following the law, instead of being made whole by following Jesus. Maybe you're here and that's the story of your life. Like you came into a relationship with Jesus because of his grace. But now you live as though you have to earn it. Stop. Stop. His grace is enough. We accept it, we believe it, and we walk in it. God is not looking at your life, Christian, disappointed in you. He's not looking at your life angry at you. He's looking at your life saying, I love you. I knew that you would be unfaithful. I knew that you couldn't live out the law. That's why I sent Jesus. And that's why his grace is enough for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your words today. We thank you for the challenge um, that is present in this text. But Father, we also are aware of the present reality. God, please forgive us of trying to earn your grace and earn favor by following rules. And Father, when we fail, help us to not allow shame to creep in, but Father, help us to run to your feet and say, Jesus, I failed again. I failed again. Save me from my wretchedness. Father, I know that this teaching is so countercultural, but I also know, Father, you're present, your spirit is present in this room. So help us to understand this truth and help us to apply this truth. Because we live in a world that desperately needs you. We ourselves desperately need you. So now, Father, as we sing this song, continue to speak and help us to be obedient to what you're calling us to do.